0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying his word together. Today we invite you to look deeper into First Peter, tuning into our current series Unshakable, Steadfast Hope in an Unpredictable World. Join us as we allow God's Word to shape us and renew our hope with the brilliant truth of the gospel. We get a chance to dive into God's Word, so let's go ahead and take your Bible out and turn with me to First Peter. This is a book we've been in. Uh, this letter that Paul, Peter writes to uh, the Christians in the area um, has been something we've been in the past few weeks, and we want to continue there as well today. So 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be looking at two verses today. Chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. These are two short verses, uh, but they are packed with meaning and packed with implication for each one of our lives. You know, this week I was thinking about um, throughout history, of all the people that have ever lived in history, there are certain people that, that come to mind, whether for good reasons or for bad. Like if you think about all the people that have ever been alive, can you think of some people that stick out in your mind? Well, for me, I'd like to share a couple with those, uh, several of those with you. Uh, I'll never forget. It was back in the spring of 1993. I was uh, a, a junior in high school. And I remember watching the news as uh, the tales unto- unfolded about a little town called Waco, Texas. Do you guys remember Waco, Texas? There was a, a a cult leader. His name was David Koresh, and what had happened is um, he he had taken his his people, and they had, were living in this compound together. And there were some accusations of of some child abuse that that were that was going on inside the compound. And so uh, the federal government gets involved, the FBI gets involved, and they come for a time of investigation. And it turns out into a, a, a gun shouting, or a gun shooting match, and um, and then what happened over the next fifty one days is there was a standoff. So you've got the compound with with these people inside that are part of this cult. And then you've got the FBI on the outside and law enforcement. And for 51 days, they waited as they were trying to to free these kids and to save these kids. And I'll never forget that day that I watched the images of the compound going up in in flames and and knowing that people are dying inside. and, And come to find out, David Koresh, 78 others died um, during that day, of the 78 that died, there were 21 of them that were under 16 years old. And I remember just as a, as a high school student thinking to myself, man, that, that's evil. Like that, There's something wrong with that. There's something wrong when people give up their lives or die for, for, for something that's not founded in anything that's true. And I thought to myself, man, this is so, what kind of a world do we live in? And then I was reminded two years later, in 1995, I remember watching TV um, when Timothy McVeigh uh, sought to get revenge on the federal government by blowing up uh, a federal building in the city of Oklahoma City. And he blows up the building and in the process kills 168 people. And of those 168, 16 of them were children that were in the daycare that was located in the, in the the bottom of that building. I remember seeing images like that in my mind, thinking to myself, Man, these, the faces of these men are Im, impressed upon my mind that I'll never be able to get them out. And thinking to myself, how could someone come to the place of doing such evil? But you know, at the same time, there's also those images of people in my mind that, that got us used to do tremendous good. In college, I was spending some time reading about the life of Mother Teresa. Now, you may know a little bit about Mother Teresa's life, but she was a nun that felt that it was her call of God to go to one of the most depressed, most poverty-stricken cities in the world, Calcutta, India. And there she pledged to give her life to, to, give, to restore dignity to people that were tossed aside uh, by society. And, and I was even remind, reading the story about the time in which um, the nuns and the people from um, her, her ministry there were rescuing babies from abortion buckets and how they would take these babies and give them dignity and give them love and to, to show them that they, that they are somebody, that they have worth. And uh, Mother Teresa said this uh, about her ministry and about the people that she served. She said that they lived like animals but died like angels, wanting to restore their dignity. She also was asked one time by a reporter, uh, why, what, what is the whole purpose of her life? And she says this, in life, we are called to suffer for Christ and offer yourself to God. We're called to suffer for Christ and offer ourselves to God. God used Mother Teresa in an amazing way to bless so many I'm also reminded of another person that has left an um, indelible mark on my mind and on my heart and even my own life. And his name is Billy Graham. He was a pastor, uh, a Baptist pastor and evangelist that uh, has been known to be one of the most influential Christian leaders of the 20th century. He is he's known and he's loved by, by so many. And so many can, can face or track their faith journey back to maybe something that he said, maybe a sermon uh, that they heard him preach or a book that they uh, read about his life. And I'll never forget the way he impacted me. I had a chance, Sarah and I had a chance in the summer of 2000 in Nashville to attend one of his crusades. And uh, while we're sitting there getting ready to hear him preach as he's preaching, he had just uh, was going through a time of a back injury. And he's got this chair, and he's got the podium, and he's, he's barely able to speak. And I remember in my, my mind that the critical heart that I had at the time. I remember listening to what he was preaching, and I'm like, man, he's barely communicating the gospel. Like, I know that I could do way better than him. I know that I can communicate the gospel more clearly than him. And then the Holy Spirit's conviction came over my life as I heard him call people to make a decision for Jesus. And all across that stadium, thousands of people rose and walked down to to meet with someone so that they could come and accept Jesus. I, I, I knew in that moment, like the power of God living inside of someone that surrenders everything. Someone that said, God, it's all yours. Use my life. However, God can do great things through that person's life. And you know, there are, there are people maybe in your life that you know that have left those indelible marks, whether good or bad, maybe in, infamous or famous people. But I want us to see today, it doesn't matter uh, who we are, each one of us are called to make influences of those that are around us. Whether we want to or not, the people that are in your circles of influences, your kids and, and your neighbors and your, your co-workers and your family members, they're watching your life and each one of us are living, leaving impressions on those lives that are all around us. Your life is telling a story. Your life is impacting those that are around you for better or worse. And as Peter is writing this part of the letter to the believers uh, that were scattered in the Roman Empire, remember he's, he's writing to these believers that are living in a hostile world. The culture around these believers is very hostile against them. And what Peter is doing is he's writing to encourage them to remind these believers that their life does have meaning, that their life does have purpose, that God has placed them in their unique time in history to be an influence on the culture around them. He's reminding them that their lives are important and that their lives are a witness. And today what I want us to see is that your life is a witness. All of our lives witness to something or someone. And as followers of Jesus, your life, your words, your love, your message, your work, all of those things are to point people to Jesus. That's the purpose of of your life. This morning I was reading uh, in my devotional book that I love. It's called My Utmost His Highest, written by Oswald Chambers. How many of you guys are familiar with that one? All right, it's a good one. Well, today I was reading and uh, I, this just struck me in what he said. He says, All of God's people are ordinary people who have been made extraordinary by the purpose he has given them. We're all ordinary people, but when we come into a relationship with God, God has an extraordinary claim on our lives. He has an extraordinary purpose for each one of us. So you here in your faith in God, you are not just an ordinary person. You are extraordinary in the purposes and the plans of God. And what is God's plans? What is God's purpose for you? That you would be a witness to this unbelieving world. Last week, as we left off in um, verse nine of chapter two, we were reminded of our identity in Christ, that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are God's special possessions. And then in verse nine, he says, you were all this, but you were all this for a purpose so that we may proclaim the excellencies of God so that we would proclaim all that God has done in our lives. You see, there's purpose in our world. There's purpose in our lives. There's purpose in your existence. As I've said before, before the foundations of the earth were laid, God knew that you would be alive right now. God knew that you would go through the challenges that you would go through. God knew that you would have uh, all the giftingness that you have right now. God knew it and God has strategically placed you to be alive right now so that you can be a witness. Have you ever thought about that? Like that somehow in God's cosmic scale and somehow in God's great plan for redemption, you are an important piece in that. You are extraordinarily placed here by God for his purpose. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, we live in a very, very fast paced world world, where constantly we're bombarded by conflicting messages about who we're supposed to be, what we're supposed to think, how we're supposed to feel, what we're supposed to do with our daily lives. And let's, if we're honest with ourselves, it's easy for us to to get distracted. It's easy for us to forget about why we're here. And sometimes even as Christians, we are guilty of forgetting that our sole purpose is to point people to Jesus, Instead, we get carried about our our family and concerned about our family. I mean, it's important to be concerned about your family, but we make that more than our our, our idea of pointing people to Christ, or we get concerned about our job, or we can get concerned about our finances, or we concerned about if people like us, and we can very easily lose sight of why we're here. So let me ask you this question this morning. If someone were to look at your life, which they are, Who are you pointing people to in your life? Through your words, through the ways that you live, through the things that you do. Another way of saying it, if someone were to troll your Facebook page or your Instagram account, what message would they receive? Who would they see that you're pointing them to? Are you pointing them to yourself? Are you pointing them to the things of this world? Or are you pointing them to Jesus? See, that's the reality that we need to look at in our lives. Let's ask the question, with my life, who am I pointing people to? God the Father has called your life to be a witness. He's called you to live in such a way that your life changes the directory of someone else's life life. Did you get that? God has has called you to live in such a way that when you are living for Jesus and God brings someone into your life that's on a direction that's headed towards hell, that they meet you. And when they meet you, they meet Jesus. And because they met you, the trajectory of their life is different. Think about that. Because when people do intersect with your lives, you're leaving an impression on them. And either the impression that you're leaving on them is that their life that's headed towards hell is no different, or you're saying there is a better way. There's a better way in his name is Jesus. There's nothing greater, there's nothing grander, there's nothing more glorious than the calling of being used by the, by the Father and empowered by the Spirit to make disciples. This is the glorious call. Of Christians. But we know that as we try to live out this call, there is a battle. We're deeply entrenched in a battle. And this is what Peter's getting through today. He wants us to see that there are two battle lines in our lives, there are two grounds of battles that we face. And I want us to see them today. The first battle that he talks about is that we need to win the battle within. Win the battle within. Look with me in verse 11. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So what Peter, he begins with this word beloved. What what he's meaning by that is he's, he's taking everything that's been written so far because remember Peter has been taking a lot of time talking about who we are in Christ. For those of us that have placed personal faith in Jesus Christ, he's given us a litany of all the things that this does for us, all of our identities. That because of our hope in Christ, because of our faith in Christ, we've been born again to a living hope. We've been given an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It cannot be stolen, lost, or destroyed. Our salvation is guarded by God's power. We have been ransomed by the blood of Jesus. We are chosen. We are priests. We are exiles here because we are citizens of God's nation. We are his possession. That's just I just summed up chapter 1 and, and most of chapter 2 as, as Peter's saying, this is who you are. And he's saying, be reminded that you are beloved. You are beloved by God the Father. The Father of the universe, the creator of all things, has a special kind of love for you. This word is is kind of the the same way that when you enter into a marriage relationship where there's a a covenant between the two beloved. The, The husband beloves the wife and the wife beloves the husband. That means that they are for them, that they are connected to them, and they give them a special type of relationship that is not to be experienced by anyone else. And he's saying you are beloved by the God of the universe. Now, for those of you that are here today that don't yet know Jesus, that are outside of the family of God, this is not your experience. These promises, this identity is not yours. Remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about the need for us to decide what we're gonna do with Jesus, right? We either have to consider the person of Jesus and either he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who has died on the cross for our sins and we accept him as Lord and Savior or we consider Jesus and we reject him. So if you're here today and you have received him, you have believed in him as your Lord and Savior, these are your promises. But if you've rejected him, these are not yours, but they can be if you receive him. So he says, beloved, beloved from this place of being loved. Now in verse 11, there's this transition from who you are in Christ. Now he, from here until the end of chapter four, he's going to say, you are beloved, but now this is how you live among the Gentiles. So he's transitioning to talk about how do we now live based on who we are? How do we now live? And then he goes on and he says, I urge you you. Beloved, I urge you. It's almost as though you can feel Peter's strain. It's almost as though he's like grabbing them by the ears and he's saying, you need to listen to this. Understand now that your identity means that you live a different way in the world. You have a different purpose. So I urge you as beloved, listen to me. And Peter then goes on To say, as people that are marked by the grace of God, we must refrain from some things while we give ourselves over to other things. So there are things that we reject and then there are things that we receive. There are ways that we choose not to walk and ways that we choose to walk. So we must refrain from some while living and embracing others. And then he goes back to to giving us that, that, that theme that he's given us over and over and over again is this identity being reminded that you are a sojourner. You're just passing through. This is not your home. This is not your land. You have no stake in this world. As a sojourner, you're to take no possession of these things. You are a foreigner. And so as a foreigner, you must not fully participate in the customs and practices of our host culture. And so he says you must win the spiritual battle that is within by not by abstaining from the passions of the flesh. This word abstain means to uh, it gives a suggestion of holding back or walking away from or avoiding what is sinful It's the idea of, imagine you're you're walking down the path in the middle of the wilderness and and all of a sudden in the middle of the path, this dirt path, you see this venomous, poisonous snake in the middle of the road. What are you going to do when you see that snake? You're going to abstain. Right, You know the dangers of that snake and you're not gonna approach that snake and wanna cuddle that snake because you know the dangers that are there. No, instead what you're going to do is you're going to hold back from or you're gonna move away from or you're gonna find your way around it because you know that there is danger. This is the same thing that Peter is saying about this idea of abstaining. Know that there are sinful fleshly desires that are out there that will seek to destroy you. And he says, these passions of the flesh. What are these passions of the flesh? These passions of the flesh are strong desires that are motivated by selfishness. Another way of putting this is living in in such a way that all you're seeking is your own personal happiness. You're only seeking things that bring you pleasure. And that pleasure comes at the cost of others. Peter, in uh, this book, both in, in chapter four and in verse chapter, or chapter two, gives us, uh, he first of all identifies some of these passions. He says, somehow these passions are lived out in this way. He says, first Peter chapter four, verse two, says passions are sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. He says these are the passions that people are are, are going away with. They're they're having a a loose sexual license. They're they're taking the things of this world and they're abusing the things of this world and it's changing them. And then in chapter 2, he says these passions, when you live in these passions, this is what it produces. These types of passions produce malice and all deceit and hypocrisy, envy and all slander. So basically what what Peter is doing here is he's connecting what we do in the flesh, in our bodies, to the health of our souls. Those those two things are so connected. They're not disconnected like our world would want you to believe. But what he's saying is they're so connected. What you do in your body impacts the health of your soul. If you're feeding the, the desires of your flesh, it's killing your soul. Those two things are incompatible with each other. And so he says that there's a battle raging inside of you against the, the flesh, the things of the flesh and the health of your soul. And here's the crazy thing is that many times, like right now, I can't see the battle that's raging inside of you. I, I can't see the war of where your fleshly desires and, and the, the, the desire to be like God are at war with each other. I can't see You can't see mine, I can't see yours, but we need to understand that all of us are walking through a battle. And we need to be reminded that we cannot disconnect our flesh and our soul. They do impact one another. Our world would like to, to say that they're disconnected. Our world would like to say, no, nah, whatever you do in the flesh, it doesn't matter. It's not impacting your soul. There's no such thing. Just go on and be happy. Do what makes you feel happy. And so the world gives us this, this license to treat sex so casually. Right? This is one of the biggest ways that we see uh, the world destroying the, the identity and the image of God. Treating sex casually with premarital and extramarital sex and, and pornography and all these things. And, and the world will even tell you it's even healthy. Like it's healthy to explore your, explore your sexuality. Go do it, try it, see what's going on out there and just enjoy it because it's okay because it's just the flesh. It's just, it's just body parts. It's just things. But that is directly in contradiction to the way that God sees it. Remember back in Genesis Remember when the first thing in all of creation that God said is not good? He says, it's not good for man to be alone. He created Adam and saw Adam toiling about and knew that it wasn't good for him to be alone. So what did God do in his mercy and his grace and his love? He created Eve, took Eve out of Adam's side and says, this now is woman for you, for the two of you. This is now bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh so that you two could become one. He gave the gift of marriage. And in that, he gave the gift of sexual intimacy so that this could be the closest human expression of oneness that we get a chance to feel this side of heaven and the closest experience of oneness. I love how Matt Chandler talks about it. He's written this whole book. If you want to read a really, really great book about this, if you're challenged by, the, by what I have just said, read this book called The Mingling of Souls. Because in this book, Matt Chandler talks about what happens when we are intimate with others. Is that by God's design, your soul and the soul of the other person that you're with mingles together. There's a way in which God weaves the two into one. And what happens if we're casual about that is that you're mingling your souls with a bunch of different people. And in the process, you're losing yourself. Your soul is dying. Be very, very careful. But we also live in a world that also has elevated feelings over truth. Right? We, we're the most important thing. It doesn't matter what's true. It matters if you've been offended or not. Right? And this is the way our world is so crazy these days. that it, it says that your feelings are so important. So if someone does something to you that you don't like, that hurts your feelings, that your response is retaliation. Your response is to get them back. Your response is to be angry at this person. Your response is to make that person the enemy. Now, I want you to see the problem with that. The problem with that is that when we get follow down that path, what it does inside of us is it devalues the image of God in other people. Let me remind you, each one of us are made in the image of God. If you have breath in your lungs... You have been made in the image of God. Therefore, you have worth and you have dignity. And it's all equal. Doesn't matter how much money you make. Doesn't matter the color of skin. Doesn't matter where you live. Doesn't matter what language you speak. You are made in the image of God and you have value. And when we seek to become angry or we seek to retaliate against other people, what that really is doing is devaluing the image of God of the other person. See, our world wants to disconnect those two things. And what Peter's saying is what you do in the flesh impacts your soul, the health of your soul. So don't allow your flesh to kill your soul. I love how Paul in Romans talks about this battle. I I love chapter seven of of Romans because Paul gives us such deep insight into his own struggles in dealing, walking in the ways of his flesh and walking in the ways of um, of the spirit. As we know, we're challenged by that. In Romans chapter seven, verse 19, this is what Paul writes. He says, "'For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do is what I keep on doing.'" Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I I call this, this passage, Paul, the schizophrenic passage. Right? Because you, Paul's like, I'm deeply entrenched in this battle. I know the good that I want to do. I want to do good. That's in my heart. But then I, instead of doing the good I want to do, I do the exact opposite. And when I do that, it's the sin inside of me that's controlling me. But then when I do the good that I'm supposed to do, it's the spirit of God working inside of me. He's like, what a wretched man that I am. to feel that way? That's the story of my life. Like every single day of my life. So Paul understands the battle. Jesus understands your battle, but doesn't give us excuses to be able to say, "Ah, I can't do anything about it. No, he gives us the answer. Paul says, what a wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me? And then he gives us the answer. God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Guess what? Jesus has already won the battle. He's already faced the, temp, the, the test of temptation. He's already faced all of the, of the challenges. And so the way to victory for us is only through the one who's already won the victory. Are you following me? The victory's not going to be found when you come to the place of just saying, ah, I'm going to give that up. The victory is not going to be found when you say, I'm just going to be stronger. I'll do better. I'll be better. I'll do more. I'll put that away. I'll abstain from it. If that's your answer, you're going to fail. Because that's not the answer. The answer is he and me will never fail. He and me will never fail. Do you be reminded at the moment of salvation, that moment that you surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus, a beautiful promise took place. A beautiful transaction took place. The spirit of God, the full power and presence of God began to dwell inside of you. You see, we have everything that we need at the moment of salvation. We have everything to live godly lives, as God calls us, and through the power of the spirit. Romans 8, chapter five, Paul writes this. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but of spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. See, the battle for us is to walk in the spirit, is day by day to allow, when we have those thoughts, when we have those feelings, when we have those emotions and those desires that are contrary to the design of God, we surrender them to the spirit and say spirit give me power when the spirit comes and convicts us that we're starting to go down the wrong path instead of tuning that out and, and uh, drowning out that noise with other things of this world we tune in and we say what do you what do you want me to learn what we, what do you want me to know how do you want me to to live see the call is a call to surrender to give up our lives so that Jesus can shine through us, So the battle is within. Second, I want us to see the battle, or we need to win the battle outside. Verse 12. Peter writes, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see, winning the battle within is so important because it impacts our witness. If we lose the battle within and we give our lives over to our fleshly passions, then we have no hope to give the unbelieving world. If our lives do not look any different than our unbelieving friends, then we've got nothing to give them. Because they're like, why do I want to follow Jesus if our lives are exactly the same? If, if, if you continually get stressed out about the same things over and over and again, or when you live in a, a shakable world and, and you're losing your mind, how does that help? It doesn't help an unbelieving world. Because you have the power of God living inside of you so that you can live a life of faith over a life of fear. You can live a life trusting in God when life doesn't go your way. Peter is exhorting believers to care for their conduct. It's not only a matter of what we believe, it's a matter of how we live. You see, Christians in Peter's day were under immense scrutiny and criticism. Remember, I told you several weeks ago that, that Christians were blamed by Nero for the fires that some say he actually started that burn almost half of Rome. Half of Rome was ablaze and Nero decides that what he's gonna do because he hates Christians, and He's going like, it was the Christian's fault. And so he turns the world on Christians and says that they're the ones that did this. And then everyone else in the world around them continues to persecute Christians because Christians were accused of being disloyal to the emperor because they refused to worship him. They were accused of hurting local businesses because they would not purchase idols to worship. They were also accused of being godless because they didn't worship idols. And so you see they distinctly lived or they they lived distinct lives among their culture. And the world looked at them and they're like, you guys are the bad guys. But Peter instructs them. As you live in this life, do not defend yourself against the accusers. Instead, take a different approach. Demonstrate a different quality of life from those of non-believers. Don't get bent out of shape when your good life and your good motives get called into question. That's what he says here. Don't don't get all bent out of shape because it's going to happen. When when people, when you do something in the motive of love and it's received as hate and you you get called out for it, guess what? That should just be a reminder to you that the person that's calling out your love as hate is watching. They're watching to see how you respond. They're watching to see if you really are who you say you are, if you really do believe in what you believe in. That's what's happening. That's why, that's why Peter says, don't get all bent out of shape when they do all this, when they, when they look at you. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable." So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The unbelieving world is watching your life. And Peter says, keep your conduct. Watch out, watch out for your conduct. Watch out for your thoughts. Watch out for your feelings. Watch out for your motives. Watch out for all of that over a long period of time. Keep account of your behavior. Think of your thoughts, not just for a season, but continue to monitor how you're feeling. Continue to to look at the ways that you're walking and don't try to present a perfect life to your unbelieving friends, unbelieving neighbors, unbelieving family members. Don't try to live a perfect life because you won't. Instead, live a life that expresses and demonstrates a deep abiding walk with Jesus. It is possible as we're engaging with our family members and we're engaging with our loved ones and we're engaging with our neighbors, engaging with our coworkers, that it is possible that some of our unbelieving friends may witness us out of step with our calling. That doesn't mean our witness is totally lost. What it means is we fess up to it. We go to our friends and say, hey, I know you saw me do this. I'm sorry. That's not how God has called me to live. And by God's grace, he's changing me. Like, own up to it. Don't try to just make excuses for it. That's what the world says. The world doesn't want to define sin as sin. They want to give excuses for it, but not so for us. If we mess up, let's call ourselves out on it and let's fess up to it and say, yes, by the grace of God, I'm not who I was and I'm not yet who God has called me completely to be. Not all who watch our lives will become followers of Jesus, but I pray some will. We need to live in such a way that we're pointing people to Jesus. I love this phrase in uh, verse 12. He says, do your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What he's saying is as as unbelievers are watching their lives, as they're seeing how you respond in good times and bad times, when when the rug gets pulled out from under you or life all around you crumbles and, and you remain faithful to Jesus, Some in your world on the day of visitation. What this means is that some in our lives, when the grace and mercy of God visits them, when their eyes are open to see and their hearts are open to receive the gospel message, that's on the day of visitation of the Lord. And that's what we live for. That's why we're here, so that we can see our neighbors, so we can see our loved ones, our coworkers, our family members come to know Jesus. But remember the natural response when our intentions are called into question. When your intentions, even though you intend to do something in love and it gets received as not love, your natural tendency is gonna want to pull back. It's gonna want to isolate the situation. It's gonna want to take this person and move them outside of your life. But that's exactly the opposite of what the Bible calls us to do. Instead, we're called to live lives of love before people over the long haul. You're like, okay, pastor, I get it. I, I, I just, oh, So what do I need to do? What, is, what does this look like? Well, it begins, first of all, with you continuing to have a deep abiding relationship with the God of the universe. It's got to begin there. You've got to spend time knowing God. You've got to spend time um, talking with Jesus. You've got to spend time praying. That's where it begins. It begins by us in... in uh, Devouring God's word more, spending time with him so we, we can know his heart, so that we can know his ways. And then we get to, together, we do things. I want to encourage you, one of the greatest things you can do right away is, you know, this Thursday we have uh, the day set aside for prayer and fasting. This is something we're doing all across Woodside. And on the 29th, uh, we are meeting. I want to encourage you to come at lunchtime on uh, April, uh, August twenty, not August, October 29th at noon. We're going to be right in here. We're going to spend some time praying because we know that prayer moves the heart of God. The Bible reminds us that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and heal their lands. We live in a world that desperately needs to be healed. And God has given us everything that we need to be a part of that, but it begins through prayer. And so I'm gonna ask you to come join me this Thursday at noon. I know many of you are like, I work. I'm gonna ask you to take take your lunch break and get here. Get here so that we can spend time praying for personal revival, spend time praying for our church, praying for our community, praying for our country. We desperately need the Lord during this season like never before. And to prepare for that, I'm gonna ask that you also spend some time fasting. Now, fasting can be a food fast. It may also be a fast from maybe some social media. Maybe it's from your telephone. Maybe it's from, I don't know whatever it is, but figure out a time to fast. And I'm gonna ask you to do a 24 hour fast from sundown on Wednesday night to sundown on Thursday. Take that time. And the reason that we fast is we give up something so that we can focus on something else. So, if we give up food, the reason we give up food is we give that time over instead of eating and gorging ourselves with food, we take that time to spend on trying to press in deeper with Jesus. That's all fasting simply is. So, I encourage you to do that. Uh, sun, sundown on Saturday, or Wednesday to sundown on Wednesday to Thursday. And then we'll meet together for a time of prayer. The other thing that you can do during this season is is to mobilize yourself to make a difference in your spheres of influence where you have people. We've tried to provide opportunities for you to do this through the auto care ministry. Share that post. Let other people know that they can get their car cared for. If you've got the, the time, fill up one of our Thanksgiving boxes that we've got available. Those are real ways that you can make a difference during this season. Okay, let me get a little bit closer to home. Maybe what if you, uh, today, you were to go around your neighborhood and you were to find the uh, maybe the neighbor that gets irritated at your dog? Anybody have a an neighbor? Anyways, you know the neighbors that sometimes may irritate you or things like, what if instead of allowing them to irritate you, you spent the afternoon and you rake their leaves? That'd be kind of cool. What about the person in your neighborhood that has a different political sign out front that you disagree with instead of like, feeling bad things and evil things towards them. What if you got a rake out and you rake their leaves? Maybe the most special thing you can do during this season is to remove the political signs from your own yard. Because maybe that's getting in the way of your witness. My girls and I have been, uh, I drive them to school in the morning. And, and about a month ago, uh, we were going by this guy's house and, and his yard was full of all these Trump signs. It was Trump, Trump, Pence all over the place. Big ones, small ones, glowing ones, flashing ones all over the place. And we're driving by and we're like, huh. And the kids are like, that's kind of, hmm. And I'll never forget about, about a week and a half ago, we were driving by and guess what's happened? All of those signs are gone and the only one that remains is Jesus 2020. That's all that matters. That that's that's all that matters. It doesn't matter who you're voting for and all those things. We follow Jesus. He is our king of kings. He is our Lord of lords and we follow him. And we need to be thinking as Christians, how do we bring people to Jesus? How do we point people to Jesus? Not how do we divide? Not how do we make distinctions of who's right, who's wrong, who's good, who's bad. We point people to Jesus because he heals people's souls. He gives us life. That's why we're here. You're not here to promote a political platform. That's not your job. Your job is to not be the advocate in all social media for your thoughts or your feelings. Your job is to be an ambassador for Jesus. Let's embrace that. Let's walk in that in love to each other. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for loving us. We thank you, God, today for reminding us of our witness. Father, help help us to not miss this opportunity. And this time in all of history, we have a great opportunity to be your ambassador. Father, the world needs to see us living a dynamic and deep relationship with you. That changes everything. And so, Father, may we dive in deeper with you. May you transform us from the inside out. May we walk in your spirit and may we be your witnesses. And, Father, if there's someone here that doesn't know you and you've been working in their heart saying, Hey, I want to follow this Jesus, I pray today they would call on your name and be saved. But for many of us, it's possible and probable that we've lost sight of our purpose. And we need to confess some things. May we take the time during this next song to confess that. And then let us be reminded of our mission. And as we sing this song, may it be our resolve to trust you and follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together.